So, but you guys do have an assignment due today. Article review three, the last one is due today. Or if you feel like doing it tomorrow morning, you know, till six o'clock tomorrow morning, of course, I'll be getting submissions at two and three. And then after that, you can enjoy the rest of your Thanksgiving break. The only other things you'll have coming up due on, on Wednesday, there will be quiz seven will be due as well as the solar observations project. And then on Friday, we have an in-class quiz, a homework, and then the iTunes quiz and the final exam the following week. So that's about all we got left because I got up to the final exam on there now. So that's about everything we should have left. Uh, other than that we're doing a lab, you'll be doing a lab on Monday. I will not be here. Professor King will be doing, uh, doing a life in the universe lab with you. So he will come in and take care of that. And then I will be back on Wednesday and Friday. So that means you got lecture Wednesday and double lecture Friday, lab day Monday. Yay. If I can finish early, you can get out early on Friday. I don't promise anything. So I want to make sure, we got to make sure we get through everything for the, for the final. I will give you a break in between. I, I won't go straight through for two hours. I'll give, I'll give you, I'll take a break like we usually do. And I don't know exactly whether it'll be right in the middle, but somewhere, when it's, a, when it's a good stopping point, I will take a break and give you five, five, ten minutes in between and then pick up again. So, any questions? Anything? Alrighty. Picture of the day for today is Comet Ison. Uh, Ison is approaching the sun very rapidly right now. Its closest approach will be tomorrow. In fact, about 2 p.m. tomorrow, it'll have its perihelion, its closest approach to the sun. And after that, shortly after that, we'll actually know whether it survived or not. So hopefully so sometime later, to, later tomorrow to Friday, we will know whether Ison is going to be the big beautiful comet of December or whether it's going to have broken itself up completely. So this is just a quick, it's a time-lapse video, it lasts about 20 seconds and you get, if you're watching Comet Ison rising, so we'll let that play there. You can see the comet there, perhaps right here, and you're watching it rise and you'll, you'll see it rise way up as it goes up and as the sky begins to brighten, you get an idea of how bright it is that you can still see and follow it even quite a ways into the brightness. I don't know if you can still barely see it up there. But you can follow it pretty much the whole time, especially if you're watching it on this regular you know, smaller computer screen. You can watch it almost all the way up there, so it's really going to be bright. I mean, there's suggestions that if you're able to look properly, you might be able to see it you know, tomorrow as it passes close to the sun. It might be that bright. Don't stare at the sun looking for it because you'll hurt your eyes too, but yeah. What was the other little dot there? The other little dot. Which other little dot? That's on here now, all of these? This or? Maybe. Is that know. the one? Okay. And you can see it in like six seconds. The little flash where you might have had either a meteor or. Straight down to my left. This one? A star. A star could be one of the planets. I didn't try to identify it that carefully, but it's either a star or star or one of the planets that's there. I thought you meant the flash that went through would have either been a meteor or a satellite come cutting across the image. But yeah, the rest of it, I don't know if you can, how well you can see, but there's a pretty big star field visible right now on it. But yeah, that's just, just one, of the, one of the stars. Could be what planet is in the morning right now. It's not Venus. Could be one of the planets as well. So. No, Jupiter still, I don't think it's Jupiter, but, well, that's, that's where we're, yeah, in the east in the evening, yeah. So, 
This was taken. Ah, let's see if it tells me where it was taken. Canary Islands. So, Canary Islands, I believe, are. Let's find. Span. That's the ones. Those are the ones off of Spain. So off, well, off of Af eastern coast of Africa, they're Spanish, but they're off the eastern coast or west western coast of Africa, right here. So right in there, there's Spain and Europe up there, and the upper portion of Africa down here. So what would we do without Wikipedia, right? <laughs> yes. Wednesday, December 11th from 11. No, it's not 11:30, is it? I wrote 11:30 down on here, but it's not. It's 9 to 11. Thank you. Thank you. Confuse everybody because you probably have another exam then, right? No, I only have one every day. It's really but then I would have got to sleep until Okay. 9 to 11. Thank you very much. No, it is, it is 9 to 11. Same. So you mean, for you guys, it's no different. You just come here at the same time on that Wednesday. Take Monday off, though. You, don't have, you can take another exam on Monday. Questions, questions? So look for Comet Ison. When I come back next week, we'll have a much better idea of you know, how it's going to start looking. You'll probably actually be able to the point of starting to get up nice and early in the morning and look for it. Right. I, I see the excitement to get up at 5 in the morning or 6 in the morning to look for the, to look for the comet. If it is, you can always, of course, otherwise you can always wait a few weeks and it will be visible a little bit, a little bit more reasonable hours. Alrighty, well, let's finish up 16. We were almost done with this chapter. We were looking at the universe on the very large scales. We're going to finish that with this chapter and then we're going to come back in when we start 17. We're picking right back up with the universe at large scales. And I showed you this one last time. This is a map of the universe. We're, we're down here at the center, center. That doesn't mean we're at the center of the universe. It just means we're measuring everything from our location. If you happen to live in a great galaxy out here and you made the same map, you'd get the same general structure. It doesn't really matter who's making the map. All of the other galaxies are receding from it, which is what you're measuring. You're measuring the di distances or the recessional velocities of those galaxies. So it really doesn't matter who's making it. Would it look a little bit different? Yeah, because if you're sitting right here, you're going to get a little bit different structure than if you're sitting over here. But the general pattern would still be the same. We'd still see walls. We'd see areas where there's lots of galaxies. We'd see areas where there's hardly any galaxies. We'd see these great voids. So that's what we were looking at last time, that there's these walls and voids in the universe. Now this is only the nearby universe. This only goes out to about 200 million parsecs, 600, 650 million light years, right? Way, real, real, real close compared to 13 billion light years. You know, how many, how many 600 millions are there in 13 billion? Well, good, good number. So you're only looking at a little fraction of the universe. We can do this for a much larger chunk of the universe as well. And we start to see now kind of a lack of pattern. So this is going out, this little blue line, that's what we were looking at in the last image. We were looking at that nearby section here. Now we're going out, you know, twice as far, three times as far. We're getting out to an even bigger chunk of the universe. And what we start to see is that there really aren't any big structures in it. There's not any gigantic walls that are any bigger that stretch across at these very large distances. We don't see gigantic walls stretching across. You don't see voids that cover whole big chunks of it. It's almost like a, a frothy mixture. 
if you think of it that way in terms of the universe, that on very small scales, 100 to 200 million parsecs, universe speaking, relatively small scales, there are some structures. You can actually map out some details. But really, when you get to a much larger chunk of the universe, it all looks the same. There's really not a big difference. And meaning that there's no structure means that if I pick this block right here, and you know what are the galaxies like in there, and I pick another block over here, is there really any big difference between them? Are you going to see, am I going to pick one that's just loaded with galaxies if I pick, you know, a nice big chunk of this, and I'm not going to find one that's really loaded with galaxies and one that has hardly any galaxies. Overall, they're going to be just about the same. Now what you do notice if you look here towards the edges, you do seem to see that there's a lot more galaxies here than there are out here. That's simply because we can't see them, right? When we look close, these are things that are close to us. I can see all the nice big spiral galaxies. I can see all the big elliptical galaxies. But, and, and I can see all the little irregular and dwarf, and dwarf elliptical galaxies. When I look way out, I can still see those big galaxies, but the little ones getting a little faint. They're harder to see. So the reason it's thinning out up here that we're seeing fewer galaxies isn't because there really are less galaxies. It's simply because many of them are so faint and so hard to see. So it's just because they're hard to actually detect. All right, now. Quasars. Quasars were the most distant, some of the most distant objects we knew about. That means they can tell us about the universe. Right? We see them as they were 10, 12, 13 billion years ago. And that light that we're seeing today left them 10, 12, 13 billion years ago. It's been traveling for billions of years to get to us today. It left those quasars before our galaxy formed. Long before our, our sun formed, long before the solar system for the, and the Earth formed. So it's been traveling for a very long time to get to us. And it's probably traveled through some very interesting regions of space. And we can use that light coming from those quasars in order to be able to understand the space in between us and the quasar. So we have a quasar over here, say, you know. Super bright, incredibly luminous from billions, you know, billions of light years away. And we're away over here, you know, observing that quasar. Well, that light traveled, let's just say, this whole distance traveled, you know, maybe 12 billion light years to get to us. It's a lot of empty space, but it's not completely empty. There's gas clouds and other things that this quasar's light will have to pass through in order to get to us. So it might have, you know, several different gas clouds. Quasar would produce essentially a continuous spectrum, right? All the colors, all the colors of the rainbow. If there are gas clouds in between us and the quasar, I know I'm going back real far, but what's going to happen to that light of a continuous spectrum when it passes through a gas? You're going to get absorption lines. So this is going to absorb out. You're going to get absorption here. You're going to get absorption here and here and here. You're going to get a little bit of light absorbed out each time from whatever makes up these gas clouds. Well. Primarily, these gas clouds are all made up of the same stuff, right? Hydrogen, hydrogen, 
mostly hydrogen and a little bit of other stuff. So each one of them is going to absorb a little bit of the hydrogen out. But it's not all static, right? Everything's moving. So this quasar is moving away from us at an incredible speed. This gas cloud is also moving away from us. It's a little bit closer, so it's not moving quite as fast as the quasar. But it's still moving away from us. And it's moving away from us faster than this cloud. And it's moving away from us faster than this cloud, which is faster than this cloud. And I drew four in for simplicity. There's probably going to be thousands of them in there. right? All sorts of gas clouds with 12 billion light years. It's a pretty bit of a big, big distance to travel. So each one of these is going to absorb hydrogen out. But it's going to absorb it at a little different point in the spectrum, right? Because they're all redshifted by a different amount. So that line is going to be shifted. So when we look at it, what we're going to see instead is the line that's supposed to be, you know, way over here, one of these hydrogen lines has been redshifted. There is some bright emission by the quasar. And then you have all of these little absorptions that are occurring on the way. Each one of those is telling you about a different one of these clouds between us and that quasar. So not only by studying the quasar do we learn about the quasar, but we learn about all the intervening material. And again, I simplified it by drawing four here for you. There'd be thousands of these. Thousands of these clouds in between us. So really, just taking one spectrum of the quasar not only tells us about the quasar, but is telling us about all these different clouds how far away they are from and how far away they are from us and how much getting an idea of how much material how much how much how blocked out is the light is it really blocked out is there a lot of material there or is it only a little tiny dip where there's less material so not only do we learn about the quasar but we actually learn about the material in between us and the quasar as well um if you happen to have a, a black hole would do something else, it really wouldn't affect the spectrum. I mean, if there were a black hole that were distorted, it will distort things, but it really won't affect the spectrum that you see unless you're talking you know, right by the quasar or something. But just in between, it really won't, won't do much other than bending the light. It won't really affect the spectrum of anything. Okay. So we're going to learn a lot, of, we can learn a lot about the gas by looking at each of these different clouds. Now. Here's what the black holes and what matter can do. This was an interesting object that was discovered. It's a double quasar. Right? Have double stars. Why not a double you have galaxies that go together? Why not a double quasar, two quasars together? But they were not only double, they were really identical. You know, double stars, well, th this one does one thing. This one does something a little bit different. These two were exactly the same. One got brighter, the other got brighter. One got fainter, the other got fainter. Something really weird going on, right? What it was found was that, I mean, even their variations were the same, that it's really not two quasars, it's one quasar. It's just two images of the same quasar. How do we get two? Picked, how do we get two? I mean, two quasars, I mean, they're never going to vary exactly the same, right? A quasar is matter feeding into that black hole. So, yeah, you might get more matter and one might get brighter, but they're always going to get brighter and fainter exactly the same. You know, something really, really weird going on there. This is what a black hole, another black hole, or another big mass can do in between. It can actually bend the light from this distant quasar and make it appear to come from two different locations in the sky. Now, they're real close together. The bending is not 
gigantic. You're not going to see one coming from over there and one coming from halfway across the universe. But you can actually get an image of this quasar, two images of this quasar with say a black hole that's lined up almost directly with a distant quasar and you can get those two images. You can get one jet here, one image and a jet here and you can get exactly. So it's really two images of the same quasar. That's what a black hole can do to this, to this light. And even more so in some cases we actually get little even more interesting things that can, that can occur. Now how this works is we're bending the light, so there's something in between us. Might be a black hole, might be a galaxy, might be a whole cluster of galaxies. There's something in between us and that distant quasar. And that quasar is then sending off light in all directions. So some of that light goes around one edge of the galaxy. Einstein says it's going to be bent, so it gets bent a little bit. Comes to us here. Now, when we look at it, we don't see the bending. So we're going to see it. We trace it back and we're going to say, well, there's that quasar. It's right there. That's where we're going to see it in the sky. When we look at this other one, here's another bit of light from that quasar coming around this side. It gets bent and comes to us from this direction. We trace that back and we'll see another image. So we're going to get two identical images of that quasar just caused by the gravity of this object in between us. And again, that could be a black hole, could be a, a galaxy, could be a whole cluster of galaxies lining up with a distant object. We can also, we get to learn a little bit about the quasar. It might take a little bit more time for one to get to us. So these paths might not be exactly the same length. So while we see the variations are the same, you know, there could be, you know, days difference, weeks difference, that one of these paths is a little bit longer. It might take it a little bit longer to go one of these paths than the other. So we're going to see this image of the quasar as it was you know, 13 billion years ago and we'll see this one as it was 13 billion years ago plus an extra couple weeks. So you can actually know what's, you could know then what's going to happen to this one. This one, if, once you figure out that they're the same, one's getting brighter, guess what that one's going to do in two weeks? It's just that the light took a little bit longer to get to us. So this helps us not only learn a little bit about the quasar by analyzing multiple images of it and seeing it at different times, but it does tell, also tells us about that galaxy in between. It tells us a lot about this galaxy because we're now seeing an effect. We're seeing this, this quasar has been split into two images. We can calculate how much mass there is. How much mass does this galaxy have to have in order to split that? And we can uh, also understand this galaxy or black hole or cluster of galaxies. We can learn about the material in between us and the quasar as well. All right. Almost done with 16 here. Here's just a couple images looking at a few. Uh, this is an example where we've actually got four images. So you've got the quasar almost perfectly lined up with the, with the galaxy. And you can actually get four images, four identical images of the quasar coming around different parts of that galaxy. If you get it perfectly lined up, meaning exactly that galaxy is precisely lined up with the more distant object, you'd actually get a ring. You'd actually get a full ring of, so the quasar instead of looking like a point or a few points here would actually look a, like a ring of light around the lensing object. You've got to get it lined up perfectly and I'm going to show you an example of that or a simulation of that in a, in a couple of minutes here. So here you can get four images. Here's a couple things where you get a few more images. This is actually a cluster of galaxies. 
So you have more distant galaxies and you see all these odd shaped galaxies are all light of more distant galaxies that are being lensed, that are being distorted as they come through the gravity of this larger cluster of galaxies. On the other side you see again these objects are probably one single galaxy. This bluer objects here are probably all one single galaxy that are being lensed as it comes through this cluster. It gets a lot more complicated when you're letting a cluster do the lensing because the mass of the cluster is spread out a lot more. It's not just all concentrated. For a black hole it would be nice and simple. Right? You've got a point source of gravity that's bending the light. When you start looking at clusters you start getting all sorts of odd images not quite as near as even as you looked at in the other ones. You see some over here, some over here, all really part of the same galaxy that is actually located behind this cluster. Question? Question? Yeah? Yes, it could. By seeing how much bending you do, you can determine the mass of the cluster, and that's part of, you know, part of the dark matter problem. You for how much mass that we need there to bend that light that much is a lot more than adding up all those galaxies. So it's a still a problem with dark matter because we're seeing there's a lot more mass there, if Einstein's right. You know, haven't been able to prove him wrong yet, but you know, if Einstein is right in how general relativity works, there's a lot more mass that has to be there in order to explain the bending that we are seeing. And I think that's what the next image is actually showing you. On the left, you've got, here's the visible image of the cluster of galaxies. You know, there's that nice galaxy right there. You can point one of the central portions of that. So there's an arrow pointing that so you see out where we're looking at. When you look at the dark matter, based on gravitational lensing, based on the motions, you see a lot more. There's a lot of mass. There's only a little bit of visible mass here. But look how much mass must be there in order to account for the motions and any gravitational lensing that we see. It's a lot of matter. The dark matter is concentrated and not concentrated just with the galaxies. There is a lot more dark matter that must be present in order to explain all of the things that we see about the galaxies. So in this case it's figured out from the motion of the galaxies. You could do a very similar thing for gravitational lensing in order to be able to understand. We're still finding a lot more mass. A lot more mass is missing. A lot more mass has to be there in order to explain what we see. Or we need a completely new theory of gravity. Right? Throw Einstein out the window and come up with a new theory of gravity that explains everything that Newton and Einstein tell us and explains why we don't need quite as much mass to bend light as much. That's another, it is certainly a distinct possi possibility that you know, there's something with Einstein that doesn't work on certain scales. We already know he doesn't work on the very smallest scales. You know, gravity and uh, quantum mechanics, that general relativity and quantum mechanics don't mesh together. Yeah? Of what, what do you mean? Of this? Of what's missing? Or? Yeah. Well, the black holes you should be able to measure from the measurements of the cluster. You should be able to measure the black, any black hole mass. So this is actually stuff that's well beyond. I mean, there's the little cluster, the cluster of galaxies. Mainly what you're looking at is the cluster, is the galaxies right here. And then the mass is just spread out a lot more than just in those galaxies. So this mass is concentrated over a much bigger area. This area where there's a lot of mass is a lot bigger than just a black hole. So there's a lot more mass spread over an even bigger area. You know, black holes, you could have a bunch of black holes scattered around there. But you know, just a big single black hole isn't going to be able to explain the distribution of mass that we, that we see. Good, good. 
Questions, questions? No? We're ready for Thanksgiving, I know. All right, let's finish up 16, and we're going to get a start on 17, which I'll pick back up with on Wednesday. But this is sort of what we've covered already. We talked about galaxy masses and how we could determine them. We looked at rotation curves, watching that stars further out in the galaxy were moving a lot faster than they should. We looked at the motions in galaxy clusters. If we just look at how fast the galaxies are moving in clusters, those clusters shouldn't exist anymore. They should have long since spread out and disappeared. So something else is happening here. There's got to be a lot more mass, or as I mentioned, maybe there's a new theory of gravity that we need. So all of this is showing that there's got to be a large amount of dark matter. Not just a few black holes, but we need, you know, for every cluster, for every galaxy in a cluster, we need another 10, 50, 100 galaxies worth of matter. It's a lot of material. And that means that the stuff that we're made up of, you know, normal matter, is only a tiny fraction of the universe. You know, if you add it up total, we end up being like 3, 3 or 4% of the total matter in the universe. It's everything that we've been studying so far. Very tiny amount. We looked at galaxies and how galaxies formed. The Hubble Deep Field that we looked at last week showed us that although this very distant galaxies were almost all irregular, irregular galaxies, and that larger galaxies probably then collided and merged together and slowly created larger galaxies. We discussed how you could merge galaxies together. If you merge a couple of spirals together and you smash them together right, you could use up all of that gas that's in the spirals right away, get a big burst of star formation, and then create essentially an elliptical galaxy. Can't really go the other way around. Couldn't smash two elliptical galaxies together and make a spiral galaxy, because where are you making the dust? Where are you, where's the dust and the gas coming from then? So you can go one way. You could take spiral galaxies or irregular galaxies and make ellipticals, but you can't go the other direction. Once you get to an elliptical galaxy, all the gas and dust has been used. And while they can collide, there won't be any more star formation going on because of them. Would make a bigger elliptical. Yeah, would make a giant, even giant, more giant elliptical. Not really, because irregulars also have a lot of gas and dust. So you, you might make something that temporarily is irregular, or, or maybe called a peculiar galaxy, oddly shaped, but it would settle down over astronomical time frames, you know, hundreds of millions of years. It would settle down and look like just a giant elliptical galaxy. So temporarily, yeah, you might make something that looks irregular, but it wouldn't be classified as an irregular galaxy because it doesn't have the gas and dust that the irregulars have. All right, and then we looked at the active galaxies. We looked at quasars way out there in the distance, billions of, billions of light years away. And we had active galaxies. They're a little bit closer. They're in that in-between phase. And then the normal galaxies are the ones that are close to us. Probably is an evolutionary sequence. Starting off with quasars, very active a long time ago. They don't exist anymore. We don't see any quasars within about 10 billion years, 10 billion light years of the Earth. So. They've died down. They die down to active galaxies as the black hole is fed a little bit less. And then once finally, once that black hole is not being fed anymore, it essentially just becomes a normal galaxy. The black hole is still there, again, just, just waiting to be awakened. The clusters, and we're going to look at this a little bit coming up in the next chapter, but clusters are bound into superclusters. And when we look at the scales and the structures of the universe, we see some structures. We can find voids that are hundreds of millions of parsecs in size, maybe 100 or 200. 
But once we get big beyond that, once we take a chunk of the universe that's three or four or five hundred million parsecs, still that's, that's a big chunk, but that's not, that's, there's a lot of chunks like that in the universe, they all look about the same. Yes, if you wanted to sit there and map out the galaxies, they're not all going to be identical. But if you're just doing a statistical study and saying, you know, there's, this has so many galaxies, it looks, this one looks about the same as this, which looks about the same as that one up there, which looks about the same as the one behind me, off to the left, off to the right, they all look about the same. So there's really no sign of structures on much bigger scales. And that'll become important when we look at, you know, the history of the universe and what the universe was like on those very early times. And then finally, quasars. We looked at quasars as a way to study all that intervening material. So all these gas clouds, which would be hard to see, right? especially if there's not very much material there, they're hard to detect from our point of view. But when a quasar is shining its light through them, we can then learn and we can look at quasars in different areas and kind of map out the distribution of matter in the universe. A big way of doing that, one was looking at the lines, the other way was if we looked at gravitational lensing. If it's bending the material in between it, if there's a galaxy cluster between us and that quasar, then we can learn a whole lot about the mass distribution in that cluster that is necessary to explain the images of the quasar that we see. Questions on 16? Before I jump into 17? Yay! No questions, Katrina? Okay. Don't put me on the spot, I know. <laughs> All right. Well, come on. Oh, never. But this is cosmology. This is good. We've got to have fun stuff here. Ah. But the snow is dying off. The longer I wait, the better. We should just go an extra hour today. Okay, we'll have to catch it. While this is trying to figure out what it's doing. Oh, goodness. There we go. Well, what we're going to look at in Chapter 17, if my PowerPoint will agree with me here, is beginning, we're sort of picking up right where we left off. The universe on the largest scales. We're going to look at, come on, the expanding universe. So we talked a little bit about that already. And we'll come back and talk about that. And then by next Wednesday, we'll be talking about things like the geometry of space. How is shape space? How is shape? How is space shaped? Yeah. Can't speak properly today. These are all signs. These are all signs, huh? <laughs> it's telling me it doesn't want to. We don't want. I don't need the ink aware. Come on. Are you going to be covering 18 too? Yes. 18 is a very short chapter. So 18, I, 18 I can get through in like one lecture worth. So I can get at least the high points that I need to cover, so I can get through that. So yes, 17 is the last big chapter. All right, let's try this. Now we're going to be here the whole time. Well, if it's... <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's... Well, I was hoping. All right, let's try again. Here we go. Yeah, you didn't think it would work. I know. There, look at that. Come on, come on, come on. <laughs> it's fine. The screen's still up there. All right, so geometry of space, the fate of the cosmos. It does not want to play, does it? It does not want to play today, does it? It's helping all of us. <laughs> the early universe. 
enough. You've had enough? Yeah, no, no, you want more, right? <laughs> oh, come on. Okay. One more try. One more try. We'll see. <laughs> hmm? No? We just want to close it. I don't care if you're recovering. Okay. All right, let's try, let's try again. Let's see what this does. So, just work for about 10 or 15 minutes and we're done. We're good. <laughs> so, early universe, what was the early universe like? The early universe is really those first few seconds to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. In fact, a lot of the things that you look at in the early universe, we're talking about tiny fractions of a second, so shorter than times than we can actually measure in terms of being able to understand. That's when everything formed. That's when the universe was essentially like a gigantic star, a gigantic sun, fusing hydrogen into helium. Not just in a star, but in the entire universe. The entire universe was that hot, and that's where all the helium came from. So hydrogen would form first. That's the very simplest atom. And helium would have formed through, for, through fusion. Yeah? How big of a star would that have been? Whole universe size. So, not in our universe size, but still gigantic, much bigger than anything we're... Probably. I don't, I'd have to look up exactly sizing-wise, but it, it would be gigantic. It would not have been just a little... Yeah. Just the whole universe would have been that hot and that dense, as dense as a star. But it would have been the entire universe at once would have been forming the hydrogen, the hydrogen into helium. But it didn't do anything else. It expanded so quickly that it cooled off, and then nothing else could form, so we didn't get anything beyond hydrogen or helium forming. Anything else that we see, you know, everything here today is from stars. So, you know, you were in a star. You, you know, everyone here has been in a star. So, yay! Even you. Yes, even you. And then we're going to look at cosmic inflation. Nothing to do with the inflation that you're used to thinking about, right? You usually think of inflation as money being worth less than it was. Cosmic inflation is just the, co the cosmos inflating. And in fact, getting incredibly big very quickly. And going from the very early history of the universe, going from atomic size in one instant to in less than an instant to being universe-sized. So incredible, very fast expansion. And we'll look at some of the reasons why we believe that is the case. And then we kind of come back at the end as to you know, how do we form this? So universe on the very largest scales, how do we form that kind of structure? We see that. How can we explain that and use models of the un early universe to be able to do that? So what, do you expect keep waiting for it to go bad? I forgot yes. that you could do that. Oh, just show the slides this way? Yeah. <laughs> I'll just do them this way. At least we can get it started. I just know we've only got a few more lectures, and I, don't, I want to make sure we get through everything we need to. So we looked at this last time. right? This map should look a little bit familiar. There's that great wall of galaxies. When we look at the smaller areas, we see some. So if I took a little area, if I took a little tiny box here, I could pick a section that had lots of galaxies. I could pick one that had hardly any galaxies. If I pick larger scales, if I pick something that are a few hundred million parsecs in size, you know, a big box like this, there's really very little difference as to where I pick that. Again, ignoring the fact that you just don't really see any, you can't detect all the galaxies out at this large distance. 
So ignoring that you can't do that, really the structure, the general structure of the galaxies and the number of galaxies is going to be about the same no matter where you look in the universe. So we looked at that one last time. All right. What is the Sloan Great Wall is a big wall of galaxies. It's just a big structure where galaxies have clumped together. Could it be related to some dark matter or something that has caused galaxies to clump? That's a possibility we'll look at later on. You know, why galaxies clump together in this specific area? Hundreds of millions of parsecs across. So much bigger than anything we can imagine. There's, there's 100 million parsecs is about that size. So you've got you know a couple hundred million parsecs in size. Question? Yeah. Would that be like a map that was close to us, or like a map of? I'm sorry. Like is that showing? We're at the center. Okay, so we're we're down here at zero. Okay. Not because we're in any special place, but because we measure everything relative to us. Right. Wouldn't matter who was doing the measurements. And then we're looking out into the distance. This goes out to a hundred uh, thousand, a thousand million parsecs or one billion parsecs. And that's just really a map of the universe. Each of those dots would represent galaxies. You're getting two areas where you can make the measurements. You're getting area measure, you can measure in one direction and you can measure the red shifts in another direction. Yeah, north and south is just how you're measuring it. Yeah. All right, so what that means is because every block looks the same, we consider the universe to be homogeneous. It means that if you take a 300 million parsec by 300 million parsec by 300 million parsec cube and take that one place in the universe, take it another place in the universe and another one and another one, it all looks about the same. There's really no differences between any of those blocks. That means there's not really any uh, structures on scales that large. Homogeneous, right? Homogenized milk just means that the milk has been mixed through and it's all the same. You take a bit of milk from the top, you're not getting cream on the top and milk on the bottom. It's all been mixed together. Well, the universe is going to be homogeneous on those li little big scales. So no matter what block you take, you're really going to look all about the same. So we say that the universe is homogeneous. We also say that the universe is isotropic, which means that it doesn't matter just which block I take, but it also doesn't matter whether I look in this direction. I'm going to count galaxies, and I'm going to get some number of galaxies and some percentage of different types of galaxies. And if I look out in this direction, I'm going to get the same, roughly. right? We kind of looked at that on your lab last week when you looked at the you had two Hubble deep fields to look at. It really didn't matter which one you picked. Your percentage of spirals, your percentage of irregulars is all going to be about the same. So it really doesn't matter whether you looked at one of those two or any other portion of the universe. It all looks pretty much the same on big scales. On small scales, yeah, it looks different. If I just pick a random you know, couple astronomical unit block, well, if I pick one with a star in it, it looks a lot different than I pick one with empty space. So they could look quite different on small scales, but when you get out to bigger and bigger scales, they look pretty much the same. There's very little change. And what we're going to call the cosmological principle, cosmology is the subject of this chapter, history and fate of the universe, includes these two assumptions. That the universe is isotropic, 
It looks the same no matter where I look at it, whatever direction I look. If I want to point my telescope out there or there or there or there or there, you know, wherever part of the universe I'm looking at, it looks the same. Statistically, again, you're going to find, you know, I might find you know, one more galaxy if you happen to look in a certain direction. But overall, statistically, it's going to look isotropic and homogeneous. Every block is going to look about the same. So what that means is it gives us, and gave us a long time ago especially, a paradox. If the universe is homogeneous and isotropic, then no matter where you look, you're eventually going to see a galaxy. You're eventually going to come to the surface of a star. Right? If I look out in this direction, eventually I'm going to come to something, something like a star. Eventually I look out here, eventually I'm going to come to... If the universe is homogeneous and isotropic and infinite, well, the universe was thought to be infinite, went on forever, eventually you'd end up at a star no matter where you looked in the sky. And that meant that then the sky should be as bright as the surface of the sun. So why isn't it? So that's Olber's paradox is why is the night sky dark? Because if the universe is homogeneous, isotropic, infinite, and unchanging, the whole sky should be bright as the surface of the sun. But we know something's wrong there because we can go out at night and it sure isn't as bright as the surface of the sun. Now there are other things that don't go into that. You don't talk about, right? Dust blocks out some of the light. We know that occurs. We also know that the universe is expanding. So the universe is not unchanging. The universe as it is now was not the universe as it was billions of years ago. But for a long time this was a big concern as to you know, why is the night sky dark? We know it is. But why isn't it bright? Why are we not seeing all of these other, other galaxies? We should be able to see, no matter where we look, we should be able to see another galaxy. So that's what Olber's paradox was, tell, was telling us, asking us. You know, what is, why is the sky dark at night? So one, some of the, one or more of these assumptions then has to be wrong. Which means, we know observations are showing us that the universe is homogeneous and isotropic. So we know that the infinite, the universe must not either then be infinite or, and or unchanging. So it must not be infinite, it must have a finite size to it. Or it must be, not be unchanging, so it must be changing. Well we know that it is changing now, we've learned that. Olber's paradox sort of predates Hubble. We know that galaxies are moving away from us and not only are they all moving away from us but the ones that are further away are moving away the fastest. So we looked at that. Hubble's law should look hopefully a little bit familiar here. The velocity at which the galaxy is receding is Hubble's constant times the distance. That's how is our last step on the distance ladder, a last way to be able to get distances. But what that means is that we can then use this to work backwards. We can actually figure out the age of the universe. If everything's expanding out, can't we work backwards? Okay, they're expanding out, they're moving so fast, and we know what Hubble's constant is, then can't we work backwards and find out how long it took those galaxies to get there? So this gives us a way to calculate the age of the universe using Hubble's law. We can calculate the age, and that tells us again that the universe had a, if the universe had a beginning time, then again, it's not unchanging. It is a changing universe, which would be one of the reasons that helps to explain why the sky is really dark at night and not as bright as the surface of a star. So, 
get to show you the next one here with a little calculation. How long did it take the galaxies to get where they are today? Right? We all know that one. Time is distance divided by velocity. Right? We know that equation. Heard it before, hopefully. You haven't? Yes, you have. I know you've heard that one. Goodness. So t- time equals distance divided by velocity, but we just knew, right? Velocity is Hubble's constant times distance from Hubble's law. So we can take that velocity here and replace it by Hubble's constant times the distance. So that means the time it took to get there, the distance of any individual galaxy does not matter. They cancel. And the age of the universe is just 1 divided by Hubble's constant. That gives you the exact, so if you can measure Hubble's constant, and Hubble's constant was about 50 to 80 kilometers per second per megaparsec, 1 divided by that gives you the age of the universe. It's a really weird set of units because it's a velocity divided by a distance unit. If you really want to calculate it and get the correct age for the universe, you've got to convert kilometers to megaparsecs and flip everything around here and do some conversion factors. But if you do that, you end up with something around about 13.7 billion years. So, can't just do it directly. There's a little bit more calculation involved to get from this to the age of the universe, but it's really just some conversions, converting. Uh, units from one to another because of the strange units in which we use Hubble's and which Hubble's constant is defined. But that gives us an age of the universe. If the universe has an age, has a point at which it began, then it's been changing. So it's not the same as it was before. So again, that helps us solve Elber's paradox as to why the night sky is not completely dark. Where are we? Okay, we can get through. We won't get to that. All right. So if we do Hubble's constant, we pick something in the middle. I gave you some rough numbers on there. They're going to give you something pretty close to it. If Hubble's constant is 70 kilometers per second per megaparsec, then that time is about 14 billion years. In in order for any galaxy to travel the distance it has away from us, took about 14 billion years. Doesn't matter which galaxy I pick. I could look at the most distant galaxies. They're going to come out 14 billion years. I can look at closer galaxies. They're going to come out about 14 billion years. And it also doesn't matter who's measuring. Because remember, we're not in any special place in the universe. It's not everything is receding from us. It's everything is receding from everything. So you could be some astronomer in a distant galaxy making the same measurements, and you would get the same, same thing. You would get the same value for Hubble's constant. You would get the same relationship for Hubble's law. Someone in that distant galaxy, you know, very out there, 10 billion light years, looking back at us, would see us receding away from them and would measure the exact same value for Hubble's law and the exact same constant that we get. So it doesn't matter who's doing the measurements, it only matters the expansion of the, it's only telling us the expansion of the universe, which doesn't depend on who is actually making, making the measurements. And let me finish up here with number 10, or slide 10. Expanding universe. So if we go backwards, that means everything's together, right? All at one spot. And that's what we call the Big Bang. That's what the event was that created the universe. Everything would have been essentially in a single point. Think of it as a giant black hole, perhaps, if you have to. I mean, all this matter, all matter and energy condensed to one point and formed from this, from this explosion. Explosion is a bad term. 
using it because it's something that you think of, but it's not an explosion in what we think, what we normally think of, right? Explosion, you think of a bomb going off, right? It explodes out into space. Well, the Big Bang was an explosion of space. So there was no space for it to explode into. It was creating space. Yeah, just what you want right before Thanksgiving. Blow your mind, right? I can see, I can see it on your face. You know. But it was, it was creating, it created space and time. So it was not expanding into anything. It was just everywhere. It was everywhere. Everywhere all at once. And I'm going to show you a little video clip on Wednesday that sort of explains a little bit more about that, but I'm not going to try to get in, into that now. So I'll come back and pick up here next Wednesday. Have a good Thanksgiving, everyone. And you have a question, ma'am? I'm sorry, question? Number four. Number four? Of the side thingy. Yes. Why is there a candy cane? Why is there a candy cane? Is there a candy cane? Candy cane. Oh, yes, there is. <laughs> we'll call it the Sloan Great Candy Cane instead of the Sloan Great Walden. Thank you. So. <laughs> now you'll never forget it. So have, have a good Thanksgiving. If you're traveling, drive carefully. And I will, again, I will not be here on Monday. Uh, you'll be doing the lab with Professor King. And I will be back on Wednesday, and we will pick up here on, on Wednesday. Well, not here. We'll pick up where we had left off on Wednesday.